some of you guys know me. I might be a new face to, to you guys. Uh, I'll tell you who I am. My name is, is John Neville, and I am um, been here for the last few summers. I've been a seminary student in St. Louis. I just finished up my program last December. Woohoo! Excited about that. Thank you. Uh, got married about a month ago. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And, um, and I get to be a full-time staff member here at Christ Church. <laughs> Super exciting. So I am really thrilled and honored to uh, join this church and be a more permanent member of this community. I just think this is just a wonderful group of people. And being able to be with you guys and know you guys and walk together is just a huge honor and privilege for me. So thank you for having me. I was uh, joking with the first service that uh, CCB has this kind of strange tradition where new pastors are expected uh, to ingratiate themselves to the congregation by preaching a thoroughly mediocre sermon. And so, so prepare yourselves. We're about to launch into it. Uh, it it's uh, probably hopefully about 30, 30 minutes. So, uh, But I'm excited for this. We're going through the book of Exodus we're taking it chapter by chapter, we're studying, we're reflecting, we're thinking about what does this have to do with us. Uh, our chapter is, is chapter 14, it's a big deal. It's where the entire book, in fact, gets its name. It's about the Exodus event, crossing the Red Sea, defeating the Egyptians, and becoming uh, their own kind of independent people. Uh, we're gonna be uh, reading the whole text, it's long, it's a chapter, it's about 30 verses. Uh, this is, uh, a lot to read. I feel a little bit bad for asking you guys to read through this, but it's actually a great story. And so let's jump in. We're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to end uh, all the way at verse 31. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. I will harden Pharaoh's hearts, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did just that. When the people of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this that we have done? And we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel. When the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have been taken, taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done uh, to us in bringing, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to his people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and will only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they may go after, they may go after you. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. I love that imagery. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strongest wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters being a wall to them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning... And in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Lord said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remembered. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egypt. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw that the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord as servant Moses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we are eager to hear from you. We need to hear from you. So we pray that your spirit would be active in this room right now and in our hearts, that he would uh, be taking this and uh, teaching us about you, instructing us about you. Uh, that you be working in our hearts, making them soft and tender towards you, uh, that where, whatever our needs are, whether we need comfort or challenge, that you would uh, shepherd us accordingly. I pray that you would be glorified in all this. In Christ's name, amen. So this story is a big deal. I know a lot of you guys have probably heard about it. The story of the Red Sea. I don't know if I just said this a few minutes ago, but uh, the Red Sea is treated as a symbol for understanding who God is and what he's up to uh, throughout all the scripture. And uh, it answers some very basic fundamental questions for us about who God is, how we relate to him, what is mission into the world. And this is how we're going to be using it this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Exodus to ask the question, what is Christianity all about? What are the fundamentals of the faith? And I feel some need to defend that because we might be thinking to ourselves, I've been going to church my whole life. Why do I need to learn about the fundamentals of the faith? That's so dull. Well, let me tell you my story, a little bit of my story. I grew up going to church. I considered myself a Christian. I prayed. I would go to most Sunday worship. And uh, in high school, I began to develop some objections to Christianity. I began to develop some criticisms. and These, these became more and more significant and weighty for me. And by the time I left high school and went to college, I decided I wanted nothing to do with Christianity. 
In fact, I was kind of something of an anti-Christian. You could say a big part of my life was being opposed to Christianity. And I spent a number of years in that place. And then during that time, I met a pastor. His name is Ryan. He's a great guy. And we just became kind of best buds. And we ended up meeting regularly. And during these conversations, we would talk about things like, what does the Bible say? What do Christians believe? And I would ask, I've probably asked thousands of questions over those years. And during that time, my heart became more and more warmed to a biblical faith. In fact, for me, until kind of one point, I said, I'm back in. And what's, when I look back on this, it's really interesting because the, the Christianity that I was critical of, in hindsight, was actually not authentic, biblical, historic Christianity. It was actually probably more of a distorted, Americanized Christianity. And the irony, actually, is that many authentic Christians would agree with my criticisms. And so some of us are here this morning, and we're saying to ourselves, I don't think i am got both feet in. I got maybe one foot in, I maybe got both feet out, something like this. And a very worthwhile question for us to consider is whether the Christianity that we're critical of is authentic Christianity, or maybe it's a distortion of some Christian faith. Others of us are here saying, I've got both feet in, I'm in, I'm dialed in, but we're kind of like fundamentals of the faith. I'm like a level five Christian. I don't need to worry about that stuff. You know, that's like level one, level two stuff. Well, here's, here's a new fl- news flash. <coughs> How often do we say news flash on Sunday morning? Never happens. Every day, okay, every day apparently, so I'm the new guy. Um, news flash. <laughs> Christianity is really all about the fundamentals. It's not about upping your level. It's not about gaining skill or sophistication in a particular area. It's about daily, and especially weekly, being realigned, re-identified with the gospel fundamentals. And that's actually what we're all doing here this Sunday morning. You're not coming here to learn something you know, super savvy and interesting. You're really here to be re-identified as a gospel people. Because what happens on Monday morning? We still remember it. We still feel like God loves us. There's still a sense of like, I want to represent his love and justice in what I'm doing. Wednesday, we're starting to kind of forget it. And by Saturday, we're all basically atheists again. <laughs> so, right? And then like we need church. And church is where like we get reconnected to the gospel uh, fundamentals. So hopefully, I, I think that reflecting on the fundamentals matters uh, a lot. So what are those fundamentals? Well, first off, Christianity is an event. Something happened. Christianity is about God breaking into the world to act on behalf of his people who are oppressed to liberate them and give them a new life. You see this expressed in our passage, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. God is working on the behalf of his people who are an oppressed ethnic minority to liberate them and to give them a whole new life, a whole new way of flourishing. The cross is seen as an instrument of liberation, of this kind of Exodus-style liberation. Through it, God is working to liberate us from both our personal evil, the evil in our hearts, the the inclinations and tendencies towards selfishness, towards self-absorption, towards arrogance, boastfulness, all these things. 
But God's liberation is also for the sake of the whole world. God's, it's, we don't just kind of spiritualize it, individualize it. God's trying to do something in our communities, in our society, in our nation, in which he's coming for the sake of the oppressed. He's coming to align himself to stand with people who are vulnerable and oppressed. He's setting himself against the oppressor, and he's offering people a new life of freedom and of abundance and flourishing. He does this in a very unexpected way. You would think, how does how do most liberation happen? You have these, you know, these democratic liberation armies, you know, everywhere. The 20th century is full of dozens of these, and uh, they always they're always revolutionaries. They always bring violence. They always, you know, they're they're all about crushing and and whatever else. <laughs> and um, uh, Jesus comes in a very unexpected way. He comes in disguise. He brings liberation by appearing in the form of a servant. And what he does is he lures all the oppressors to himself. He lures all evil, all sin, all of our enemies to himself, and it's on the cross that they crush him. He ends up allowing himself to be defeated and crushed by his enemies. But something unexpected happens. is that in his death, all of our enemies also die. He takes them down with him. And it's in his resurrection... He ends up coming back to life, and that's his victory over all of his enemies. And he shares his, his, this new freedom with all people who call on his name. This is what it looks like for Christ. This is how Christ acts as a liberator in our lives. This idea of being a liberator, or in the Bible it's called a go-els. Go-els are all over scripture. One of the places I love seeing it is Leviticus 25. A couple great examples there. Uh, one is where you have a, a family member who's so poor, so destitute, that they think they have to sell themselves into slavery. And they have no other option. It's either starve to death or, or slavery. At least get a meal and a, and a bed that way. So they sell themselves into slavery. And a family member, a Goel, will come along and buy them out of slavery. It will cost them a lot, but they come and get the back of their family member who's literally in slavery because they're so economically disadvantaged. Another way you see it is with a, a, a woman who's a widow. Uh, her husband dies. She has no heirs. She's in a very vulnerable, disadvantaged position because she can't hold on to the land anymore. The land was only held on to uh, male heirs. It means that she has no way of providing for herself. And so there's this kind of little bit of a strange practice where a male relative would come to the, uh, to the widow, marry her. They would have a child together. And then that would uh, secure the family land, both to her and to the, uh, to the, uh, the child, keeping it in the family. And so that's, that was another example of a goel, a, a liberator. And all of these illustrations are ways, are backdrops for understanding what it means that Jesus is our liberator. Uh, Jesus is our kinsman who comes to us as an older brother, and he's going to do whatever it takes, whatever it costs, to protect us, to defend us, and to liberate us from all the things that oppress us, both society and in ourselves. So what's, what's the application of this? Why does this matter to us? Well, I think it means that we tell our stories differently. If Christianity is about something that happened, about a happening of, of the brought liberation, it means we're going to tell our stories differently. If you were to talk to an ancient Israelite and you ask him, how do you know that you're redeemed? Uh, they wouldn't answer it in the way that we do, which is giving a personal testimony they would instead tell a story of a national epic. They would tell a story about how they were an oppressed ethnic minority living in a foreign land 
And God came to them as their brother and liberator. And he brought them out and he gave them a life with himself. And he gave them new laws to bring freedom and justice. And then he promises them the whole world. He says everything. Like your life is as bad as it can get. Then he promises them everything. And for us, knowing that story, knowing that Christianity is about an event, takes some pressure off of us. Because it means we don't have to have the drugs to Jesus story. Right? You know, we all kind of, we all, a lot of people kind of think, if I don't have the drugs to Jesus story, I'm like a second-rate Christian. You know, I have to have something that really made me feel like I get God's grace. And if not, you know, or we have to have a conversion experience. You know, there's like a moment where I wasn't a Christian, was, etc. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a burden you don't have to bear. Because uh, your story is really about being caught up into God's larger story. It's not about you um, trying to conjure up all these experiences, curate your life in a way that brings those, uh, that um, makes you look a certain, like a certain kind of Christian. It's about when your story inhabits and submits to the larger story of God. So Christianity is partly in events where God brings liberation. Uh, point two, Christianity is a community. Uh, God isn't just satisfied with saving people. He wants to bring us into relationship with each other. And this, Christ, this community is very unique. Uh, we're a community that's been brought into existence by God's grace. This is pretty radical. Let me, let me tell you what's going on. Most communities that you're a part of exist because of something you had to offer. So you got your job because of your talent and experience. You got your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, because you're good looks, you're kind, you're responsible. Uh, you got your uh, membership at the local club because of your membership dues, so on. It's all about the things you have to offer. Christianity is the exact opposite. We're all here because we had absolutely nothing to offer. <laughs> I'm spitting on communion again. <laughs> good thing it's covered, so... Um, this, is, this, is, this has been a life-changing realization for me, though. We're literally here because I showed up, I had empty hands, and God looked at John Neville, he saw me in my poverty, and he said, Jesus is enough. Come on in. And that's every single one of you here. And when we realize this, when this, massa- when this grace begins to massage its way into our hearts, begins to mean something, begins, begins to kind of orient our lives, it means we relate to each other in totally different ways. I wrote down a few examples of, of what it would look like to live in a grace-filled community. And I think it's kind of interesting. Here's one example. It means that you're interested in people who aren't like you. It means you'll be sitting down, you'll be talking with someone who they're kind of different from you, they're not part of your tribe, but you're just fascinated with them. And you want to keep talking. And when the conversation ends, you're like, how do I keep talking to that person? How do we keep this going? How do I hunt them down? It means that when people hurt you, you can forgive them. It means we don't keep a little running tally of all the wrongs people have done about us, done against us. We don't um, uh, think of ways to be vengeful, how to kind of snub people, stuff like that. It means we don't go looking for compliments. I was telling the earlier service, telling Michelle even yesterday, <laughs> but that um, one of the things I found I'm doing is I'll go to people and I'll be like, I really suck at something. And then I'm expecting people to compliment me. To be like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you know? And we don't do this. When grace means something to us, begins to have a weight, we don't, we don't go looking for compliments or go trying to have other people build us up. Here's the last thing. Big deal. This sounds strange. When grace begins to inform our communities, shape our communities, that community 
becomes eclectic. Everybody doesn't look like each other. There's some diversity. And that diversity will look differently depending on what city you live in or wherever you live. But it means there's going to be weirdos and there's going to be cool people. You know, it means there's going to be liberals and conservatives. It's going to mean there's wealthy and poor and, and so on and so on. And that God's grace ends up providing a resource for understanding how to relate to each other. Uh, one of the places you see this so clearly is in the book of Galatians. I love Galatians. Read Galatians 2. It's, it's really worth your time. Uh, you see this illustrated so well. It's about the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And Paul is confronting Peter. And he's getting in his face. <coughs> and he's getting in his face because Peter was kind of a Jewish Christian. He was a Jew who became a believer. And uh, he thought if you were super spiritual, you would be a very kind of Jewish-looking Christian. So you would eat certain things and practice different holidays and stuff. And he only wanted to hang out with other people just like him. And Paul gets up in his face. And what's the language? It's something like, uh, I posed him to his face, I think, is the language he uses. Super controversial. Paul is hot, like hot mad. He's, he's right. And what does he say? You were compromising the gospel. You were spitting on the gospel by only hanging out with people just like you. And it turns out, according to the Apostle Paul, that the gospel has a lot to do with who you associate with. And what he's so mad about is that Christ's blood brought everybody in here, and that was all you needed. And that according to Peter, you needed Jesus, but you needed a little something else. You needed some special kind of religious practices on top of that. And that's why Paul was so angry. A good question for us to ask, a good diagnostic question is, does everybody I know look just like me? You know, there's, there's of course, people are going to look just like us, and that's a natural thing. We connect with people over life stage and personality and all these things, but we don't want everyone to look just like us. So it's helpful to, to reflect on, is everyone just like us or are we different? Uh, because really, it's God's grace that's at stake here. Uh, point number three, Christianity is not only an event, a community, it's worship. Christianity is worship. Uh, being a, a, a Christian is about worship, and we're used to talking about worship as what we do here on a Sunday morning. That's definitely worship. But there's something more fundamental, a different kind of worship, which is an entire way of leaning into God. When we're worshiping God, what we're saying is God is ultimate in our lives. That he is the one who has the ability to give us meaning and purpose. That God has the ability to confront us, to challenge us on things, to tell us kind of what to do with our lives, uh, that he has the ability to rescue us and meet us in our helplessness. And this is what it means for us to worship God, is to treat him as ultimate. Our passage uses some kind of uh, especially biblical language to describe worship. Uh, let me read the last thing. This is Israel's response. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord, and in his servant Moses. Two things there, fear and belief, are the two responses to God's salvation he brought on their lives. What do those mean? Fear is something you see all over the Bible. It might seem sort of strange to have us expect to, uh, we're expected to fear a loving God, and, uh, but there's really different kinds of fear out there. If we were to go hiking over at Mount Baker, and you're walking down a trail, let's say you ran into a mountain lion, that would be, a deeply fearful, terrifying thing to happen, and we'd probably run for our lives. But there's another kind of fear, where if you're hiking, 
And let's say you come to the base of a mountain and it's covered in snow and ice and rock and its vastness and its power is something that's so beyond you and you feel so little. That's also a kind of fearful, dread-inspiring event. But it draws you in. It draws you closer and it fills you with wonder and awe. You want more of it, even though there's that kind of dread associated with it. And that's what it means for us to fear the Lord, that God is so majestic He's so vast, he's so beyond us, and yet there's something capturing about it. That we want more, of, more of, of God's greatness. We want to see him. We want to be near him. Here's the other piece, fear and, and belief. What does belief mean? We kind of use that word all the time. Here's how I kind of talk about it. Uh, belief, trust, faith, whatever, is answering the question of who am I? Uh, it's answering the question of what is our identity? And to say that we're having faith in, we're trusting the Lord, means that he gets to tell us who we are. And if, you're a, if you call on the Lord, it means that you're adopted by the triune God, that he con- considers you his son, that you're wrapped in the embrace that he has with uh, his, his, his son, that you're washed, that you're pardoned, that you've been conscripted into his service, that you've been given the very important task of reflecting his goodness, love, justice, truth, in all the ordinary things that you do every day. And that he's given you very honor, honorable, creative projects to help grow and cultivate his new world. That's what your identity is. That's pretty exciting. These two things make up worship, an awe and reverence towards God, and also a rooted, our identity being rooted and drawn from him. What's the point of this? Why does this matter? Well, I just moved to Bellingham from St. Louis, I hear all the time, you are what you eat. There's also a biblical side of that. You are what you worship. The things that you adore, the people you, you uh, admire, um, you end up becoming like them. I remember uh, in fifth grade, I had a friend named Drew. This is a little bit strange. I feel a bit weird admitting this. But we had this really strange thing where Drew would eat now and laters. And now and laters are really tardy, and they make you salivate and we would spit. And it was like really cool, for some reason, to be a fifth grader who was kind of spitting. That was like a new thing we discovered. And so I, one day, a few weeks later, I showed up with a pack of now and laters in my pocket after Drew introduced it to me. And then Drew also wore like a starter jacket. Do you guys remember starter jackets at all? Is that some of the, and like, you know, you had the, the Broncos, Colorado, and you know, up here, I don't know, the Seahawks maybe. And, um, and, and so, and I would got a starter jacket after Drew got one because I thought Drew was the bestest and he was really cool and I really admired him. And and whether it's fifth graders or whether it's the Lord or anything else, the people that we adore, the people we admire, the people we spend time with are the people that we're going to become like. And this is is kind of the the basic Christian formula, if you will, for change. That, That true change starts with who we adore, who we worship. So we've said Christianity is an event where God is acting on behalf of his people uh, to bring liberation, not only from ourselves, but bring a society that's marked by fullness and abundance and freedom. And that God's not just satisfied with saving us, he wants to bring us into a community, and it's a very innovative countercultural community that's unlike just about everything else you experience in life, where God's grace marks us, and he changes us as he reveals himself to us so we can become like him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for, uh, for your grace um, 
and that you are the great shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one that, as we just sung, um, when we speak a word of love to you, it's only because you spoke that word to us first. And um, we pray that we would really be shaped as an Exodus people, that we would uh, lay hold of your grace, that we would be people who extend uh, justice uh, in our families, in our neighborhoods and communities. I pray that your spirit would work this out in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.